Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the Supreme Court reviews three cases charging employment discrimination while the fate of LGBTQ workers hangs in the balance. The high-stakes 2020 elections are around the corner, yet one in five LGBTQ adults is not registered to vote. And more than 15% of Massachusetts high schoolers identify as LGBTQ or questioning. How will the state support this young and growing demographic? Later in the show, Hocus Pocus. It's the most wonderful time of the year for Halloween costume makers and costume shops. Local costumers stirring up a cauldron of Halloween costumes for the spookiest time of the year. But first, joining me in the studio, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. Hello, Grace. Thank you. Glad to be here. E.J. Graff, journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Hello, E.J. Hey, Kelly. And Jensen Wu, executive director of GLAD, GLBTQ legal advocates and defenders. Hello, Jensen. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have all of you. Let's jump right in with the Supreme Court reviewing these cases first. Uh, take a listen to The Washington Post. They spoke to demonstrators in support of LGBTQ protections outside the Supreme Court earlier this month. What's on the line here today is whether or not people can live their lives truly and authentically without being fired from their jobs just because of who they are. All right. I think a lot of people are going to hear this and think, didn't we do this? Are we here again? Um, and that's perhaps, uh, Jansen, I'm going to start with you because it's legal. Some states have addressed this directly. But now here we are before the Supreme Court. Put it in context, if you would. Yeah, most Americans are surprised to hear that not even half the states in our country have explicit job protections for LGBTQ people, and there's no federal law explicitly protecting LGBTQ people in employment either. But if we can kind of pull back for a second, I think it's really important to kind of think about what's at stake. And we can see that through the stories of the three plaintiffs whose cases were heard at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, just a few weeks ago. Amy Stevens um, is a transgender woman who was fired for being transgender from the funeral home that she'd been working at for many, many years. Don Zardo was fired for being gay after he came out as gay to one of the customers that he was serving. And um, Gerald Bostick was fired for being gay after his employer uh, found out that he had joined a gay softball league. So I think it's really important just to recognize 
the incredible vulnerability that so many LGBTQ workers still face in their employment, even when they don't choose to come out, but someone might find out. And that's a problem that we've been trying to fix for many, many decades. We've made a lot of progress in the courts, um, and now many, many courts across the country recognize that LGBTQ job discrimination is illegal under federal existing sex discrimination protections. But now those gains are at risk um, from being overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court in these cases. EJ, I'm sure that all three of the cases that uh, Jansen just referred to, a couple of those people were just had been working. Nobody had ever said anything. So it's a shock. I'm certain in those communities and elsewhere, people are thinking, huh, how can you already be working there? You've been out in some of the cases. And now, for example, in the woman, and then now all of a sudden you're kicked to the curb. Yeah. Well, huh. in one case, um, mm-hmm. someone transitioned on the job, mm-hmm. right? That's Well, that's a little bit different. Yeah. yeah. Still, and, I don't understand. We live in Massachusetts, so we're now comfortable being comfortable. Mm. And it's very easy up here to forget that there are still large parts of the country where queer is not an inclusive feeling word. It's a slur. And while Jansen said that half the country doesn't have, half the states don't have protections, the more populous states do have protections, but it's the South in particular where communities really aren't necessarily accepting. And if you're queer, that's a bad thing. you got to get out before you can contaminate everybody else. Mm-hmm. What's at stake um, as you look at it, Grace? Sure. Well, you know, I always think of this from a community perspective and that uh, legal protections are vitally important, And but attitudes take time to change. And uh, as EJ said, certainly here in Massachusetts, uh, we, we've been at the forefront of many fights around LGBT issues. But even here in Massachusetts, there are challenges. Young people continue to experience bullying and harassment and discrimination. Transgender people do, transgender women of color in particular. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that that as much as we've made strides locally and nationally, that LGBTQ people are still struggling in many places, and and especially with what's happening with the federal administration directly attacking our community. Well, what's interesting is the Supreme Court ruled gay marriage okay. So I just thought that a statement by Joe Biden actually is, is appropriate here. He This is a presidential candidate, a uh, Democratic presidential candidate, and he said, it is possible now uh, to get married on Tuesday and get fired on Friday because of the state of the laws, which is kind of, again, mind-boggling because the Supreme Court has said gay marriage, okay, and now it's reviewing cases about whether or not, you know, people can be fired for being gay, which is that's but that he he took over a longtime LGBTQRST talking point that you could get married on Monday and be fired on Tuesday and and that's still true in many of the places when there was internal dissension about the whether marriage should come first it was in part about that there were a lot of people in the southern states saying Look, you might want marriage up there in the north, but we're not safe to get married. We'll lose our jobs. First, we need job protections. Mm -hmm. And there is no—the federal protections have never been passed. And so now we're finding out, which I'm sure you're going to turn to, very interesting, Mm -hmm. is that discriminating— by sex if you fire a man for marrying a man instead of a woman. And that's the crux of the matter here, um, as it's uh, posited before the Supreme Court now. One of the things that came out in their discussions um, with the presenters, a lot of the Supreme Court justices are a little behind on what's going on in the country and the 
in the world, really. Uh, so we saw some of that in the questioning. It kind of concerns people that if they're not on top of actually what's for real now, how can they make a judgment? Because they were questioning Jansen about whether sex actually was appropriate in this context. <laughs> no, that's still really a great observation. I think we saw tensions on both the more liberal side of the bench as well as the more conservative side of the bench. On the more liberal side of the bench, I think what we saw is still a need for enormous education, particularly on the reality of transgender people's lives. When you have Justice Sotomayor asking questions that indicate concern about transgender people using the restroom, that shows that there is so much more we have to do with even our own allies. And then on the other side, um, you had Justice Gorsuch, who is an avowed textualist, you know, a very conservative jurisprudential belief that you should only look at the text of the statutes and nothing else. And in this situation, that actually favors ruling on behalf of the plaintiffs, because all the statutes say is that if you're fired because you're sex, that is illegal. And how else can you think about firing someone who's transgender or gay than to consider their sex. And so you saw questions for Gorsuch really struggling between his conservative jurisprudence as well as, you know, what we can imagine his feelings around LGBTQ equality are. Um, but just to go back to an earlier point that you made to think about kind of this contrast from just uh, four years ago with the marriage equality celebration and victory to now, the really big factor that happened is that we had Kennedy mm -hmm. retire um, and Kavanaugh take that seat. And so it just is a really important reminder that uh, judicial nominations are incredibly important. They last a lifetime and they are largely dictated by who wins control of the Senate and the presidency. Well, that's a very good transition to the next story I want to talk to you about, which is that one in five LGBTQ adults are not registered to vote. So if you've just laid out the highest stakes, Jansen, and you only get the people on the Supreme Court by virtue of nomination from the president and the president has to be elected by the people, here we are. Grace, you want to respond to that? Well, absolutely. And and we know this in general, that the uh, huge majority of, of adults, uh, voting age adults in this uh, uh, in the country are not registered to vote or are registered and don't vote and are not actively involved in the political process. And it may be because they don't feel like uh, that they can make a difference and or it matters or they're focusing on day-to-day -day survival, uh, whatever the reasons are. So it doesn't surprise me that the LGBT community reflects that as well, except that I, you know, we always imagine that folks who are experiencing oppression uh, for any reason mm -hmm. would be have a heightened awareness and and more be more politically active. And so I think it's a reminder for us in the community to make sure that everybody knows what the stakes are and is registered and, and not only is registered, but actually goes out and votes. And EJ, I want to just point out, by the way, this uh, was from a study done by uh, the University of California, Los Angeles's Williams Institute, and they focus on LGBTQ issues. And the total number is 21 percent, they're saying. But I'm saying these are the people who have self-identified. You know, we know this is a part of the situation is a lot of people we don't know. They haven't said, they haven't come forward. So it, the number actually could be higher, is my point. Um, the Williams Institute <laughs> yeah. has really good methodologies. They're, they're very good. I looked around, and it's roughly the proportion of American citizens who are eligible to register who are not registered. The thing about the LGBTQ community is that we're not really very different from anybody else. I mean, we're mixed in with every possible demographic group. We come from every zip code in the country, right? So... If your community doesn't register to vote, you also don't register to vote. I, I, I think it's not extraordinary. I think it's it's more, as Grace was saying, a, a comment on 
the country. If it's not extraordinary, is it scary, given the stakes? Well, I think everybody should be registered to vote, period, whatever community you're in. Yes. In that case, it's scary. But I just don't think we're that unusual. Okay. It just seemed very shocking to me. And, you know, I'm sitting in the seat of a community that's always behind Mm -hmm. uh, in trying to get to the get registered and get to the polls and all of that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Grace Sterling Stoll of Bagley, E.J. Graff of The Monkey Cage, and Jansen Wu of GLAD. We're discussing the latest LGBTQ headlines you need to know. Now, the next big thing, speaking of voting or not voting or being in communities that vote or don't vote, the human rights uh, group had been working very hard uh, to get a focus on LGBTQ issues politically, out there in discussion with uh, the candidates running for office. Well, that happened. They had big town hall, totally focused on these issues. My question to the three of you, was it effective? Did you think it was worth it? Grace, I'll start Mm. with you. Well, I'm smiling uh, just because it was wonderful to have Elizabeth Warren uh, give a shout out to Bagley during the town hall. And so and certainly, you know, she she has supported uh, many of our issues. So that's great. But, you know, I think for me, many of the questions were were sort of surfacey. Many of the questions didn't drill down as deeply as I would have liked around the issues facing our communities. And as they're they're trying to uh, figure out how how to narrow down the list of candidates. They, I think there are questions that really would have uh, defined how different they are from each other. And alluding to what we were saying earlier, the stakes are really high in this election in particular. And so uh, more than ever, we need to have a robust conversation of the real issues facing all of our communities, including the LGBT communities. What do you think, Jansen? Um, I think in terms, if you're thinking about moving the dial on the election, no, I don't mm. think it had an impact. But if, if you think about it as moving the dial on the candidates, then yes. I think it's the preparation that they had to go through to learn about our issues and learn about the legislation that may come before them um, that could really use their leadership, I think was incredibly important, especially assuming one of the Democratic candidates wins and comes into office in 2020. There's going to be so many competing interests and concerns on their desk from day one. And so the more they've done their education now, the better it is um, for our rights. Um, but it's also interesting for me because I always, uh, when I listen to these things, is I always have a my first litmus test is whether or not they can say LGBTQ without tripping. Mm. And not everybody can. Mm. And that tells you how fluent and how comfortable they are with talking about our communities. Mm. EJ. Well, I can't it? say LGBTQ without tripping, Jason, so <laughs> I think I'm about to turn be in your card. from the community. Yes. Turn in your card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer qualified. Um, I like Jansen's perspective on it. I like that better than my own perspective on it, which was, it was certainly vastly better than the last one that I remember, which was uh, the lead up to the 2008 election. I remember that they didn't all appear and Obama was incredibly disappointing at that time. Mm. It was clear he did not have good preparation. Mm. He didn't have he didn't have an out. It, it seemed like he didn't have an out advisor who mm. had any connection with the community. That's a long time ago. Of course, he came a long way. And this time it felt a little dutiful to me mm. that here's an important voting and more important donor block. I need to make sure they know that I care. And that does say we've come a long way. I think that's outstanding. 
On the other hand, I did come away with the feeling that, did you see the SNL sketch in which Lin-Manuel Miranda played? Yes. <laughs> yes. Castro. Castro, yes. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm not gay, but mm-hmm. uh, as a Democrat, I'll try to do better. Mm-hmm. I, there, it was a little bit, I had a little bit of that feeling. Yeah. But I'm glad they have to, they have to step up and demonstrate that they know we're alive. I'm really interested in the Ellen DeGeneres backlash and that whole scenario. So first, let me say what happened. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres was at a game sitting next to uh, former President George Bush. They were laughing and giggling. People lost their minds and said, what are you doing? Man, here is Ellen later addressing the backlash. Um, if people don't know, Ellen DeGeneres is gay and out, has been for a long time. <laughs> no, I have to say that because everybody doesn't know that. Ellen addresses the backlash over the pictures of her sitting next to former U.S. President George W. Bush at a football game. Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay, that we're all different. Just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Doesn't matter. So I really wanted you guys to weigh in on this because... This gets tricky in uh, marginalized communities. You know, there's a lot going on, and it may seem like a small thing, but actually it's not. Uh, Grace? Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting that this was uh, framed as being kind to someone. And, and, you know, I'm thinking, like, sure, we all can be civil, you know, to, to somebody as another human being, but that's very different than being friends or connecting on a deeper level. And and I think there's a world of difference between having a difference of opinion and having a different of perspective that's rooted in someone else's oppression. And so somebody who is actively working against the rights or protections or humanity of of, of a community, in this case, the LGBTQ community, and of course, George Bush had a long history of doing that as president uh, and and many other communities as well. So that's a very different thing. That's not just having a a difference of perspective. It's somebody who was causing harm and caused harm from a position of power and over, over years and years, and, and that had real effects on real people, and, and that's a very different thing. So it got framed as sort of a, you know, a, a nice kind of, oh, I can be kind to anyone, we should all be kind, and that's not the point. The point is, this is somebody who did really serious harm to many communities in this country from a position of power in the country, and, and what does that mean? Jansen, was there anything that she could say that she could have contextualized, you know, her relationship or even or maybe I don't even know if it is a relationship her exchange in the moment at the football game with George Bush uh yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. I mean it was such a general statement that you know didn't really get to the heart of the criticism right um but before I get there I just want to say that first and foremost does George Bush's legacy deserve to be redeemed I mean personally no right Mm -hmm. I mean thousands of people lost their lives because of what I believe was his reckless indifference to human life Mm -hmm. um do I care who Ellen DeGeneres is friends with in her private life? Not really. And actually, I think that that is one of the ways that we've made the enormous gains we have in the LGBTQ community is that people have gotten to know who we are. They've gotten to know our families. Um, and we have moved people's you know, understandings and empathy for us, including on marriage equality. And so I'm never going to give up on any person um, to have that evolution, as Obama would say. Um, But to Ellen DeGeneres' response, I think she could have done more. Absolutely. She could have 
actually highlighted where the differences were. Mm -hmm. um, she could have, you know, had an accountability moment for President Bush um, on the things that she did disagree with him on, you know. Um, but it was a general statement made on her talk show. I understand why she um, did it the way she did. Um, but I do hope she has those private conversations with her private friends in the privacy of her home when she has those opportunities. Uh, what do you think, EJ? I would cross the street if I were near George W. Bush. <laughs> I mean, that's my personal feeling. The man authorized torture. He had us invade a country that we had no business invading. He destroyed a country. Uh, we could go on, all of us, I know. But Ellen DeGeneres has paid her dues. She has more than paid her dues. When she came out in 96 on TV, it was an extraordinary episode. I really urge everyone to look up the puppy episode. It still stands up. It's spectacular. And she essentially lost her career. She lost her friends. She lost everything. So I think what she is expressing right now is who she actually is. She is not a profoundly political person. She is an entertainer who wants everyone to get along. That's really who she is. And it's why she's so beloved. And she just, this is going to sound so dumb, but it's true. She just happened to be gay. And that came up in her life. She faced it with tremendous integrity at a time when it really mattered to a lot of us. And she can be friends with whoever she wants to be friends with. She's, she's not my political standard bearer. OK. Um, I ask the question because so often in these situations, you know, certain people symbolize the rest of the community. So I'm glad, happy to have all three of you who are in the community speak for yourselves around this because, you know, you get questioned about it. I get the Tyler Perry questions, but I'm just digressing right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Kelly? <laughs> We're not going there. <laughs> so we've got the report that 15 percent of uh, young people in Massachusetts are identifying themselves as is LGBTQ. What needs to happen now in the state? And Grace, I'm going to go to you because you deal with young people all the time to think about ways of supporting these young people because often they are, speaking of discriminated, they are heavily discriminated mm -hmm. against. Sure. Mm -hmm. Massachusetts has been a leader in uh, developing programs, services, and support systems for LGBTQ youth. And so uh, we have a lot to be proud of and, and there's been a lot of progress that's been made uh, both in terms of day-to-day -day living and also in legal protections and and, and institutional support. Uh, that being said, we also know that uh, LGBT youth can, in this state and throughout the country continue to experience higher rates of suicide, uh, who, substance use, violence, and, and, and many other forms of, of discrimination and oppression. And so, you know, I think one of the, the things that we, we talk about a lot at Bagley and, and the Agley Network across the state is sort of not only the, the support that we're providing, but what's needed as we move forward, and and that has changed in some ways over the decades. Uh, young young people represent. Uh, you know, and EJ referenced this earlier, that are in every community and represent a whole range of identities. And this is a generation that more than ever before expects and deserves to, to be acknowledged and affirmed for all of who they are and not to have to check any of their identities at the door. And so I think from our advocacy perspective, it's important that we're advocating uh, in a way that is intersectional, in a way that is representing all of who they are and in whatever communities they're part of, and that is really focusing on systemic change and not, not just individual support, but systemic change. Uh, Jansen? You know, I think when I 
especially for youth, I always start with kind of what are the disparities, right? And you can see the clear negative disparities um, for LGBTQ youth, particularly those of color, and with regards to homelessness, with regards to interaction with the juvenile justice systems and the um, child welfare systems. Um, and so then you have to ask, why are there, there are these disparities? And I think that's where it's really challenging um, because the why is multifactorial and is complex. And it has everything to do from family rejection to the overall political climate, to state institutions that are failing or are unsafe, uh, to mass incarceration, to school discipline. And so that's where I really hope where Massachusetts can be a leader in kind of not just, okay, for example, we passed a ban on conversion therapy last mm-hmm. year in Massachusetts, which was tremendous. It was a very important statement. It protects a lot of young people who are subjected to this discredited, quote-unquote, treatment for young people who are LGBTQ. And that is only the beginning, right? It is only the beginning. And so I'm hopeful that we can really kind of dig in, get our hands dirty, and really think about all the different ways that are leading to these disparities that are deserving our youth. Okay, that's Jansen Wu. Um, E.J. Graff. I can't speak to the details the way Grace and Jansen can. I mean, they're, they're, they're deep in the work of supporting LGBTQ youth. What's interesting to me, I've seen polls nationally that go as high as 30 or 60 percent say that they're at a minimum in the queue, queer or questioning. And I think that's fascinating that for so many young people, it is now okay to acknowledge, even if you're just Mm. 1%, you thought, oh, that girl was cute once and you would have kissed her. You're still going to say, oh yeah, I'm down with the cues. I'm there. I think that says something kind of wonderful about what we've done to the culture. And I know that our opponents think precisely the opposite. Um, Maybe, EJ, you're referring to this um, new survey that came out about young Americans aged 13 to 20 years old. Um, Generation Z, not the millennials, are saying they are far more open-minded and permissive than their older millennial counterparts, specifically when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality. And 56% of these said they knew someone who went by gender neutral, such as they, them, and 43% aged 28 to 34 years old. Over a third of these people said all also strongly agreed, following what um, EJ has just said, that gender did not define a person as much as it used to. The people who did this study said they're not quite sure what that means, but it's just an interesting statistic now. And the way we started this conversation was at the Supreme Court, where we have some of the justices struggling to try to figure out what's going on. And then we have at the opposite end of the spectrum, these young people saying, well, here's where we are. And this is what we think. It's kind of an interesting time. It's a very interesting (laughs) time. I mean, all minority communities, as far as I've observed, have internal shifts in what their identity means to them as a community. Right. So ours in particular gets new words all the time, as I'm sure you've noticed. And mm-hmm. I just want to... We've discussed that here. Yes, we yeah. have. I <laughs> yes. just want to reassure <laughs> listeners yet again that the RST that I tossed on was a joke. They're not new letters that you should have learned. Um, <laughs> it, it, I'm not sure it's really true that we're more accepting of gender variation now. I think part of the reason that there's a need to define the categories and subcategories so finely is that we're, we're less accepting them, hmm. certainly than we were in the 70s. I don't mean um, legally. Legally, women have a lot more range than we did when I was um, young. But I think 
culturally, the expression of gender has gotten stricter and mm. stricter. Mm. And the, the explosion of gender identities is in part uh, pushback against that um, highly gendered representation in public. Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, while that's happening, Merriam-Webster last month uh, decided to add they to describe uh, non-binary people. I think this is kind of huge. Speaking of changes and movement, how do you all feel about it? Grace. I've been around a long time, in the, especially in the trans and non-binary communities, and so language has evolved, as EJ was referencing. Um, and it's interesting that, and, and a lot of pronouns that, uh, other than he and she, were floated, but never, none of them really caught on, but they is indeed catching on. And non-binary as a concept is too. And I think, uh, you know, that yeah, young people uh, as, as a group are always wanting to kind of affirm for themselves their own language, mm-hmm. their own clothing mm-hmm. styles and preferences and whatever as, as separate from their elders. And so it is interesting that this particular focus has really resonated with so many. And then I see that with a lot of older folks who said, yeah, this actually makes sense for me too. I use language that was available to me at the time, and I can certainly speak for myself. So I've been visibly queer in the world since the 60s, and so there's been a shortage of language to describe how I identify in terms of my gender identity, my gender expression, and my sexual orientation. And each decade, I might have defined myself differently. But at this stage of my life, but transgender and non-binary resonate with me. And I think that it's had an effect that's broader than simply many young people are defining themselves in this way. I think that's great. I'm certainly hopeful and heartened to hear the, the statistics that say that young people, they certainly are aware more and more, and, and hopefully that leads to greater acceptance. I, I hope that's true. What do you think about Merriam-Webster adding they? That big I deal? love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I mean, not only is it so inclusive um, of the broad spectrum of identities um, that LGBTQ people have, but it's so versatile and practical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use it all the time. I never have to use his, her, he, she anymore. Um, it is just a useful tool for a writer. And I say that bec- in particular because so many folks who have resistance have resistance from grammatical, grammatical yes. perspective. And that's one I've never fully understood. I mean, if you look back at the history of the English language, they has been used in many different ways, but also just from my own upbringing, you know, my first language was actually Mandarin Chinese, where there are no gendered pronouns. Mm. Um, And so that just has always felt so much easier for me. But I just want to go back to something a little bit earlier about all the young people Mm -hmm. who are expressing, you know, the diverse gender identities and non-conforming expressions of their of their genders uh, that we are seeing in generations seem more now than ever. Um, and that's reflected in the pronouns and all that as well, too. And the one thing I just wanted to flag is that I'm really curious. I'd be curious to see in that study the differences between those youth who were raised as boys in their earlier mm-hmm. life and those who were raised by girls mm-hmm. in their earlier life. Because I do think, going to EJ's point, that the policing and the punishment of, you know, young people who are raised as boys um, is so much more severe. Um, And I think that we have to highlight that because I think that is where we're losing a lot of young people. And we see that anecdotally, certainly working in the field, that while gender... Uh, expression and generally is more expansive. The range that's considered acceptable for those who are assigned female at birth and those who are assigned male at birth are very different. And males get penalized much more than females for gender transgression. Merriam-Webster, EJ. 
Merriam-Webster loves to be on the front edge as opposed to American <laughs> Heritage, which likes to be holding the old school line. So I, I am absolutely not surprised that they would get out in front and get themselves a little attention with this. Um, I love hearing about a language in which there are no gendered pronouns, and I now have to go learn Chinese so that I can talk. <laughs> um, it's useful. It's helpful in a lot of ways. And I will just speak for I have um, jock teenagers in my life, not to mention any names, mm-hmm. and they find this ridiculous and mockable. So just to say... That, that it's not they or that it they, is they? They. They, they, they the think whole, they is. Like the non-binary, okay. all of it. There mm-hmm. are still those jock boys mm-hmm. out there. I just mm-hmm. want you to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, both of you know. All of you know, I'm sure. There's somebody doing the picking on the insufficiently masculine in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, so that is still a front line. It's not all of Generation Z. Oh, I I assume that. I just, when you have these sort of uh, interesting moments and cultural shifting, you know, it's always something to note because something's happening enough so that whether Merriam-Webster wants to be on the front edge or not, they're paying attention to a lot of stuff in the air. So that's very interesting. And I'll just note that uh, State Representative Mindy Dom is trying to make gender-inclusive language in the Massachusetts Constitution. So some of her colleagues have said this is really unnecessary and we have other important work to do. But I just I want to put her men. But I'm just going to say <laughs> that she has put that on the table. So we'll, at some point, probably all three of us will be talking about this in the future. So I thank you all for joining me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you, <laughs> Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. E.J. Graff is a journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. And Jansen Wu is the executive director of GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defense. Coming up, trick or treat, it turns out that not just the kids love a good costume for Halloween. The adults looking for something unique search out local costume shops as the best place to shop. And they're lining up out the door. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Boo! It's Halloween season, and it's time to dress up in your favorite spooky getup. For local costume makers and sellers, Halloween is Christmas. Americans spent $9 billion on Halloween last year, but with last-minute shoppers and online shopping websites creeping in, these local costumers have got a lot of blood, fangs, and skeletons to sell. Joining me in the studio, Eric Bornstein, freelance mask and cosplay maker for his Somerville-based company, Behind the Mask. Hello, Eric. Hello. Also with me, Jeannie Keenan, owner of the costume company, a Waltham-based theater costume store. Hello, Jeannie. Hello there. I'm so glad to have both of you. Let's start this way. Give a listen to the movies which have influenced the top three costumes for 2019. I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the 
and Sinclair. Now we aren't strangers, are we? There's gotta be someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. So you just heard uh, from the movies Pennywise the Clown and the movie It, Spider-Man Far From Home, and The Witch is an every year ongoing exciting costume for people. So I just picked The Wizard of Oz uh, just to remind people that how popular it is. Those are the top three as of this moment. Uh, Halloween costumes for 2019. And my two local costumers are looking a little puzzled by that. <laughs> but I think that what that says is there's a lot of uh, cultural, pop cultural influence. Wouldn't you agree, Eric? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so talk about uh, what you do, because you work year round. This, this time just happens to be quite busy. Tell me what it's like now for you. It's busy all the time for me. Halloween is just a very special season. It's also a season where the general public is more tuned in to the idea of wearing masks. And you make masks. We should say, you know, just you're, you're not just buying something off the shelf when you're dealing with you. You create them. You know the history of them. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. Well, the word with with our business is custom. We've been making masks for people and renting masks to people for almost 40 years now in this area. And it's uh, at this point, I'm shipping them all over the world. And, uh, and the, the power of the mask, you know, we, you see how every Halloween there's a different pop culture reference. And I'm often a featured artist at Comic-Cons. I'll be at one uh, in November as well. I see the, uh, the yearly special is just the latest manifestation of powerful archetypes that just manifest in pop culture. So like good and evil and that good kind of, and evil. Well, mm -hmm. the crone, for instance, mm -hmm. the the witch. I mm -hmm. mean, that's one particular uh, manifestation of the crone archetype. There's also the wise woman. It's just uh, people seem to have a fascination for the uh, the sort of the witch, the wicked one. And there's I can go on in depth why that's so appealing to folks. Because I think people like evil, if you ask me. I mean, that's why all the Hall the scary Halloween movies are also uh, very popular uh, well, all year round now. I well, think. It's, it's yeah. about identity play. <laughs> yeah. uh, someone once said that children wear masks at Halloween to scare away demons and adults wear them to attract them. Very interesting. Um, Jeannie mm -hmm. Keenan, I'm curious to know in the last five years if you've seen a different uh, interest from adults, more interest from adults. Um, I am constantly surprised that Halloween is so popular. It's, according to some lists, either the third most popular American holiday or the fourth. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would say it's been increasing for a, quite a long time. And uh, the it's an, uh, it's an occasion where, you know, you don't have to make a turkey. <laughs> you don't have to buy a present. <laughs> you can Good have point. fun. It's, it's a great way to have a party, a house party, or to go to a big event or to a, a club or to, to a parade. Um, and it's a way to kind of just uh, let go, you know. So I think people, more and more adults are doing it. Yeah, And then they'll also walk their children around during, you know, trick-or-treating so they get involved with that too. So it's it's much more of an adult. And we, and we focus more on adults, actually. So Erica said we're always drawn to certain archetypes. Have you seen certain kinds of costumes? I know you do all kinds. You have a background in theater costumes. Yes. So you can do whatever. Yes. Uh, but have you seen uh, uh, more adults being drawn to certain kinds? Well, some... Uh, 
usually when they're going to an event for this for Halloween, mm-hmm. uh, they might be looking for couple type of things or, or themes. Um, there's a, a family who came in and they're doing the entire uh, Christmas theme. Uh, Santa and Mrs. Santa and the oh. children are elves. But last year they did a Thanksgiving dinner table. So so somebody was the turkey, somebody was the table. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. somebody was the table. Yeah, <laughs> so, so um, um, in terms of uh, new themes, I, I think that a lot of the same things come about, you know, the pirate, things that are just light, more lighthearted mm-hmm. and, and, um, or scary, like, like Eric mentioned, or, or kind of evil. But um, yeah, I think, uh, and then it also reflects what is in uh, media. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you mentioned the Marvel comics, so mm. there's a lot of people who want to be superheroes. So, yeah, I would say that. So when they come into your store, so both of you have customization really as part mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. because um, you have a lot in inventory. So somebody comes into okay. your store, you can guide them, similar yes. to what Eric does. Somebody comes in and says, I have this idea, he can make it. So talk to me about why that is becoming more important for people to just be a little bit special, even like this family trying to do the, the table. Because, <laughs> I mean, the Internet has really affected everything. So people can go on the online and they can get something quickly, but it's oftentimes not, uh, doesn't fit correctly. It's The quality is not really good. And and they, they wind up at an event or something that, Again, like if you're going to a party, um, and they look like everybody else. So, and we really, when when people enter our business, it's like going into the backstage of a theater, you know. And they can be, we help them create their what they their fantasy is or what they think they want to be. Or it's um, it's more of a custom kind of. A, experience for them. And we also do make costumes, too. Not at Halloween, though. Mm-hmm. Not We don't have enough time. That's my guest, Jeannie Keenan. She's the owner of The Costume Company, a Waltham-based theater costume store. Now, Eric Bornstein, when I talked about your, your and you talked about the customization, what kind of mask have people been asking for, if, if there's some common theme or one personality or something that people have been asking for around this time, specifically? It, it's always different, and it's always uh, mixed in with normal mask business. Mm. Uh, I just did a giant six-foot-high Day of the Dead piece for uh, a festival in Connecticut. I had to rent a 15-foot truck to move it. So... Uh, which was uh, used as a parade float. Right now I'm working on a large uh, Earth Guardian for a, a performer in Canada, in British Columbia. So this just happens to be coming around this time. I'll be working on a Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman, mm. uh, for someone, and uh, a production of Pinocchio with a, a nose, a mask with a, a nose that grows and retracts. I've been working on the engineering of that. So... Uh, but aside from that, you know, the usual scary things, people like skulls of in all of their variety. And it's 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 That's fun. a big deal now. Skulls. Skulls are on everything. Skulls are on everything. They're in, whether in, in zombies <laughs> or or heavy metal or uh, Halloween or, you know, then you can vary the skulls or, or playful skulls. You know, in Day of the Dead, the skulls are more brightly colored and they're more positive images in other mythologies, you know, similarly. So but it's it's something we're drawn to. Mm-hmm. So here's my question. Because um, a lot of the people who I believe who are influenced by pop culture particularly, and Jeannie has just said they they can go online, but then they don't like how it fits and it's not so custom. I'm thinking that particularly for people who are drawn to those movies or those pictures where 
you know, those folks have spent a lot of time putting the costumes on the actors. It looks so fine. They want that experience when they come to you. They want something that looks that good. Yes, I appreciate. <laughs> I, I agree completely. And also, again, another benefit to uh, shopping at local businesses is that you go and you develop a rapport. You also get the benefit of a professional consultation. When you come to one of us, you know you're coming to an authoritative expert that has been doing this for decades, and uh, they're not just trying to sell you something. They want repeat business. You know, it's the most important thing. It's not about uh, just selling. It's about finding a customer for life, someone that they know that there's somebody that knows you and that uh, can customize their experience and consult you to have the best experience possible in that genre. Because they may just think about it once a year, Mm -hmm. but we're thinking about it 365 days a year, and we've been doing it as a career and as our passion as well. So, you know, it's, it's, that's what you're you're paying for. Mm -hmm. And also we work with people's budgets as well. That's part of the consultation. You tell us the parameters and then we try to make you as happy as you can possibly be within all the parameters of your vision. Um, If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guests are costume store owners, um, Eric Bornstein and Jeannie Keenan. Well, Eric Bornstein makes masks and Jeannie Keenan owns a costume store. And we're discussing the the terrors, if you will, because it's Halloween, of operating an all-year-round costume business during Halloween. I wanted to emphasize the year-roundness of your business, because even though now, Halloween, you are super busy, and I'm grateful for you to be even having a moment to come in and talk to me, um, something that I've been paying attention to that I really didn't understand for a while is this notion of cosplay. And I wanted to explain to people, it's defined as the practice of dressing up as a character from a movie, book, or video game. Eric, you mentioned before that you had been going to Comic-Con. That's where cosplay is on display quite a bit. You'll see... Oh, man, thousands of adults dressed up as their favorite characters that used to be the nerdy guys. That is not the case now. Everybody is doing it. And uh, from the uh, Internet, I learned that they tried to trace back where that name come from. And apparently in 1984, a guy named Nav Takahashi, founder and writer of the anime publishing company Studio Hard, went to Los Angeles and he was at the Worldcon Science Fiction, saw this, came back and he described it as cosplay and that's where the terminology came from. But my point about bringing that for people, bringing them up to date to about cosplay is that now costume wearing is year round. And so this now, Halloween becomes a high point, but it's year round, Jeannie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about how that's impacted your business. Well, I, I think that we focus more on historical costuming. So uh, we don't do as much cosplay, although we do have those, those people come in as customers, but we do a lot of reenactments. We do a lot of the feature, well, um, independent films. Uh, we do a lot of theater productions. And so we have very, and we're very knowledgeable in that. Uh, area. So as far as cosplay, it's very specific. And probably I think Eric might be um, might be something he's more uh, involved with because they're, they, they all have so many different characters, different ca- ways that they want to express themselves. And we don't focus on that. We focus more on our knowledge of history. We do a lot of, for example, we, why well, we just did, um, we just did something for PBS. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Uh, we for the um, this old house, we dressed uh, the, the gentlemen. They were down in Westerly, Rhode Island, and they were sort of as tongue in cheek. They wanted to look like Western 
cowboys, so mm-hmm. we dressed them like that. We also did something for the Museum of Fine Arts that over the summer. Um, they were uh, uh, toasting an event about that related to Toulouse Lautrec, and we worked with a uh, choreographer and a dance company, and our cost, and they did the can can and the serpentine mm. dances. So we we created those and we researched those and did that. So so it's so, really it's historically accurate. Very historically accurate and researched, right in detail. Yeah. So that, that's one of the connections with people who. I didn't realize cosplay was quite as specific, but Eric, for, for people who do or are into cosplay, it's very um, specific. Mm-hmm. You can't, I mean, it has to be accurate is my point. Mm-hmm. You cannot, in the same way that Jeannie would be doing a historical reenactment, it has to be, everything has to be accurate. Same thing plays out in cosplay. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh and so, so for exi- example, historically, if you're doing a pirate, there are you know historical pirate costumes. There's historical pirate characters that show some variation. But in cosplay, you might be working with a specific pirate like Jack Sparrow, mm-hmm. who has you know specific iconography to identify him. And so that would be the cosplay application. Uh, With cosplay, they take the archetypes and the iconic images, and often there's a fusion of different aesthetics and different time periods, but also... Like what do you mean? um, Steampunk, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Right now, I have a, a list on my board of 50 different subcultures. Right now, there are so many different subcultures. Uh, you know, there's not just goth. There's pastel goth. There's oh, this. There's, wow. there's all. There's, you could go on and on. It used to be in the 80s and 90s, most of my business was with dance, theater, opera, and private collectors. And that was it. That was it. Then all of a sudden, uh, around the change of the millennium, uh, the subcultures began to explode with uh, steampunk and with all uh, cyberpunk and and then everything. And you can actually look up and see all these different subcultures. Each one comes with a different aesthetic, a different set of colors. Uh, someone once said, oh, steampunk is, well, goth discovered brown. I mean, that's a little simplistic, but there's colors, there's materials, there's an aesthetic. There's a whole conceptual underpinning to each one of the subcultures. So for me, uh, when I'm, I'm creating something for, cos- for a cosplayer, uh, it gives me an opportunity to investigate these new stories. And again, uh, cosplay may come from anime, may come from uh, graphic novels, comic books, from, uh, from movies, from video games. I've ended up becoming more known as a, to, uh, the mask maker of video games. Uh, oh, for wow. example, mm-hmm. I made all the masks from uh, Epic Fortnite, which was very big recently, mm-hmm. and uh, Bethesda uh, dishonored the evil, de- <laughs> the evil within uh, uh, and other different fantasy uh, creatures. But, wow. And I've never played a video game. I don't play video games at all, but I understand the archetypes. I get a description yeah. of all the characters, and I know what these characters are. Uh, Elder Scrolls, uh, I made those masks. So young people hear that I've made those characters and, and other characters, and, uh, and, and all of a sudden they're excited. So it's like, okay, that's how I can get them into it because those are the characters they respond to, and I can help them win their awards for their, their costume contests. And, uh, and so all and of a sudden— how, Yeah, that's how it, it stays a year-round business as well. Right. Yes. So let me, let me go back to that because now that people are dressing up, and that's really what they're doing, and um, 
you know, choosing which what they want and being very specific about it. You're not shrinks, but just like bartenders aren't shrinks either. You hear a lot <laughs> when you do this work. Why do people, why are so many more adults, Jeannie, uh, we wanting call it, to dress up? We call it costumes and counseling. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what do you, what do you? Uh, I think that people are, you know, first of all, um, you know, when costume is one thing when it's when it's in a performance or when it's in an event or when it's uh, something like cosplay or like that. But every day we're costuming ourselves, okay, and we're presenting ourselves somehow and wanting a reaction. Or there's there's like you said archetypes. Like there's a, uh, you know, when you see um, a policeman or something like that, that they're in costume, and we we come to a conclusion about those people right away. So I think people want to have an opportunity to break out of that. No, whoever they are, whoever they are, mm-hmm. right, and they often feel that once they've got you've you've worked with them that way. Plus, you're helping them get dressed, and it's almost like being in a um, a couture shop or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, they start to reveal a lot about themselves, and 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 you're making them everyone self conscious when we get down to it, you know, about mm-hmm. how they look and who they are, and so we make them feel good about themselves, you know, and then they, they everyone leaves with a smile. Went from most most of the time, unless they're under pressure for a, a production. Um, so I think that that's it, it's. We always do say that they t- people um, speak about themselves so much, open up so much when they're working with us. So I'm curious, do when people come in to do Halloween specifically costuming, do they go opposite? Do they try to go opposite their personality because they in in terms of that breaking out from who they are. I would say yes, and also I would say a lot. What at least in our in our situation, because we have over five thousand uh, costumes in our uh, costume house, that they will say they'll put something on, and particularly if it's historical, and or from a different time period, and they'll go, "I always knew I belonged in this time period." <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, and oftentimes they do, and sometimes when they also when they might come in and they're they're confused and they don't know what they want to do, and they're so they feel pressure. A lot of times they feel pressure to to look good or to feel. Uh, comfortable. And um, I can pick up right away where I, it, it's sort of an intuitive thing that I have, where I think that, what direction I think they should be going and how I think they're going to, what, what they're going to look, weren't going to look good in. So, okay. yeah. Same question to you. Are, do, do you have a sense um, as the uh, mask maker bar shrink, why people want to dress up? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, identity play is a healthy pressure valve to the constraints of living in a society that has a lot of expectations and judgments. So very often people don't feel confident expressing what they might feel as an inner self that might not be ex- expected or accepted. So they, they, they actually construct a social persona that fits in and is accepted while inside they have a rich internal life, but they never let it see the light of day. So it's really nice to have socially supported events where someone can, well, let their freak flag fly or let their hair down. Or really, I think it is liberating the true selves. See, I see masking as not uh, donning a false face, but liberating different true selves. You know, there's different little sides of us that are less uh, acceptable in the workplace or in certain types of uh, uh, variety of, of uh, social of situations. Venues, yeah. but mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. But it's still part of us. I mean, we're trying to navigate society, but we're also having our own personal lives, our internal dialogue, our own journey, as it were. And so there's a lot of adventures that aren't necessarily work-related that we want to pursue during our lifetime. And by exploring our different selves, it really helps us. uh, it, It helps 
it, it enriches our inner life and it also makes us more, I think, compassionate and accepting of others. It's an exploration of otherness as well. Mm. So I think that it, it, it helps us develop more empathy, more compassion, uh, and it just accept a lot of variety and different creative choices. So I think it really it helps stimulate our creativity. So it, it, I think it enriches our lives in many ways. Well, given how popular Halloween is, and I should say, I have to confess, it was never one of my, it still isn't one of my favorite Halloween. I mean, I, I'm interested to see how people dress up, but I've been fascinated by the number of people I personally know who, I mean, go to extensive lengths to uh, create personas for this occasion. And then they have events where they go with other people who are creating different personas. So it's to me, it feels as though it definitely has increased in the last few years. This is anecdotal, of course. You all know from where you're sitting, and that's my question. Um, how much have you seen that interest and uh, grow? And do you anticipate that it's going to even jump up higher? <laughs> RuPaul was uh, was on Colbert. And he, I never really followed RuPaul very much, but he is brilliant. He's talked about drag as a way of of accepting the human condition and meeting it with humor and, uh, and intelligence. And it's like, I never looked at it that way. I always thought of it as coming from a different place, but the way he described it, it really resonated with how I look at masking and costuming and exploring identity play. It's really, it's, it's a way of creating balance in your life mm-hmm. and just dealing with this crazy world that in, in a way that's, that is uh, personal and unique and empowering. So I, I think that there's a lot of intelligence behind this desire and the, uh, the courage and curiosity to explore otherness within ourselves. Um, last word, Jeannie. Well, I always say it's more fun in costume. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a good line. Right. <laughs> Life in general, I Life guess. Life in general, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, need to, we need to de-stress for sure. <laughs> All right. All right. Last a quote from Joss Whedon. He says, don't be yourself. Be all yourselves. Oh, mm-hmm. well, all right. That's good. Or Oscar Wilde, be yourself. No one else will. That's right. <laughs> all right. I cannot believe the, your mask maker, costume store owner, you're all philosophers on top of everything else. Yeah, you have to be <laughs> yeah. in this business. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation. I know you're quite, quite busy at Halloween time. And um, um, good luck to you. Thank Thanks you. For Thanks for having us. Having us. Eric Bornstein is a freelance mask and cosplay maker for his Somerville-based company, Behind the Mask. And Jeannie Keenan is the owner of The Costume Company, a Waltham-based theater costume store. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm-hmm.